appreciation to folks who, who serve, right? Remember that? So I, I said if you wanted to, uh, to show your appreciation to me, just write thank you on a $100 bill. Someone did. So if you're here, they didn't put their name on it. If you're here, thank you. And uh, we'll take, uh, take the staff guys out for, uh, for lunch one day at uh, Costco. <clears throat> and uh, thought you guys were going to appreciate me. So No, so whoever did that, that, you didn't need to. The church takes good care of me, and I appreciate that. But it was, a, it was quite a blessing. So appreciate that, all right? And what I meant to say was you could buy me a car. That's what I meant to say. So... Uh, if you want to switch, I'll give you the $100 back, uh, and, and we'll go to the Mercedes-Benz dealer. All right. How about the uh, Hugo? Was that Hugo? Is that, was that a car? What was it called? Hugo? No, Hugo. I'm going to go right now. All right. All right. Enough of the nonsense. Straighten up, class. Hey, we're in a series called uh, Devoted Together, and we're looking at, uh, started this as, I think, week three. And so we're looking at kind of the New Testament church and going back to the first century and kind of peri- uh, looking into what that first century church was like and what they were devoted to and this crazy devotion that they had for each other. And so if you pull out your outline, you know, we're going to kind of just get caught up on it real quick and then go into today's lesson. At the very top of your outline, I said in the book of Acts is the story of the first century church. So the book of Acts is the history of that. And it did not start out as an institution. A lot of people think the New Testament church, and, and I'll be honest with you, uh, in many cases it, it is an institution, but it was never meant to be an institution. And I think, personally, I think the reason why the North American Christian church has lost its, its passion and its movement is because we have become an institution. And uh, that's a whole other message. But anyway, it started out as a movement, and the Spirit of God was moving in the lives of the people, and there was this kind of push forward. And the church, the idea of the word church that we find in the New Testament, doesn't mean building like we have here, but it means an assembly or a gathering. So whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, primarily that's what it's referring to, a gathering of believers, a gathering, an assembly of people gathering together together. Uh, under the simple message, which is the next part, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He died on a cross and then He rose again. And that was the simple message in which it kicked off. And they, Peter and the rest of them were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection and the life of Christ. And then Jesus appears to them and He says, hey, you're going to be my witnesses. Where are you going to be your witnesses? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Remember when they said Samaria and all the Jews are like, we don't even go there. That's like the other side of the tracks. We don't want to go there. And, and he says, ultimately to the ends of the world. And here we sit today, a couple thousand years later and several thousand miles later uh, away, and we're hearing about Jesus being proclaimed as Lord and Savior. And then the third idea that we've looked at and where we're going to spend the next few weeks on is the serious devotion that the first century church had. And as we sit here today and we think about how it left Jerusalem and in that holy area, holy land, and spread out to the four corners of the world was this serious devotion that they had. And something that God has kind of placed on my heart is to kind of reel everything back in and kind of look at our devotion as believers. Are we devoted 
like they were in the first century. If we were able to time travel back to that first century church, would your devotion to Christ, would you fit in with that group? And that's a tough question to ask. And so we've looked at Acts chapter 2 and week number 1. And we'll just look at it real quickly and then we're going to launch into it. Uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 42, here's what they were devoted to. They said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's what we're going to talk about today, growth or discipleship. And then if you go down to the last part in verse 47, and it says, Praising God and enjoying favor of all people, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were going to be saved. And the way that that, that that verse is set up is it literally has the idea that as the world was watching the believers function and, and operate on a regular basis, a daily basis, as the outside world was observing them, there was something about how they lived and their attitude and their actions that actually draw them into becoming Christ followers. And then that verse would go on and it says, and the Lord added to those daily, those who are going to be saved. All right. And so we'll, we're going to circle back onto that as we get ready to go uh, at the end here. All right. So with that being said, let's get ready to go. What is the purpose? And here's the first question. What is the purpose of the church? Go ahead. Come on. This is a, this is a classroom. Let's hear Spread the gospel. What else? Eat donuts. What else? Somebody say, someone say make disciples. Okay. So, yeah, it's on there, right? <laughs> like all the rest of you guys going, the guy isn't getting it. It's right there, right there, right? So, so we are to, we are, the purpose of the church is to make disciples. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, and, and get the connection here, Go and make disciples are connected. Okay, side note. You cannot be a disciple without going, right? And we're going to get to that. So it isn't about just head knowledge. There's an action that takes place. And so he says, go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and you know the rest of the verse, right? So, so then here's the next question that we ask. And this is where it gets muddy in North American Christian churches. Well... Number two in your outline, well, what is a disciple? And you get all kinds of answers. You get all kinds of answers. So let me just throw a couple of them at you. A disciple is a person who is becoming spiritually mature. Do you agree with that? Come on. So half of you are like, I'm not going to answer because I know it's wrong. All right? And this occurs in the life of a believer, by getting a massive amount of Bible knowledge in their head. Okay? So some people would say, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's kind of it. My, my, my actual gift is, is discipleship teaching. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I kind of fall into that. How about this? A disciple is a person who cares about lost people. And they invite their friends or their neighbors, their unsafe uh, family members to church so they could hear about Jesus. Okay? How about this? A disciple is a witness for Christ in every way. He or she knows how to win someone to Jesus and participates in sharing in his or her faith to individuals uh, as part of the local church. Okay, so, so here, here, here's the issue when it comes to discipleship and what a disciple is. <clears throat> There's a saying in teaching and preaching that if it's, if it's foggy in the pulpit... <laughs> 
it's way foggy in the pews. Okay? If the pulpit doesn't know what, it's, what it looks like, the folks in the pews have no idea what it looks like. Right? And so when we get into disciple, and, and we talk about discipleship, if you're in school, you, 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 it's, it, you could take a whole semester on spiritual formation. There's literally tons of books to read. And I could pull out my books and we could have a stack this high on how it is to build disciples. And here's what, here's what I think the issue is. It has become so muddy, we don't know what a disciple looks like. There's not a clear, simple, easy way to evaluate our life and ask that question, how am I doing as a disciple? And if you take it to the church, the church is the same way. If we talk about, yeah, we need to build disciples. Well, what do they look like? That's a good question. I have no idea what they look like, but we need to make them because that's what Jesus said. Go make disciples, right? And it's foggy. It's it's not clear. It's muddy. So what I want to do today is I want to share with you from an experience that Jesus has as he calls two of his disciples, Peter and Andrew, to follow him. And I just kind of, this is not all that's necessary and needed in discipleship. The goal of today's lesson is simply this, for you to evaluate your life as a disciple and ask yourself the question, how am I doing? Okay, so this is not meant to cover every topic in the scripture about discipleship. We could talk about this for the rest of the year and still just scratch the surface of all the information that's out there. But I think as we leave here, you'll have a little better understanding of where you stand and in the sense of following Christ in your life, all right? So, with that being said, if you look right underneath what is a disciple, a disciple is a person who is following the precepts, right, or the teaching or the instructions, in this case, of Jesus, right? So, if you're a disciple, you're going to be following the, the, the precepts, the teachings of Christ. So, let's take a look at three attributes of a disciple. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 29. Or verse 19, sorry. He says, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20. At once they left their nets and they followed. Okay? So we're going to focus just on verse 19. Number one. So as Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, here's what he says to them first. He says, come follow me. Right? And so number one in your outline is follow me involves the head. Okay? The head. Got that? All right. Both of you got it. So, do we, do we got that? Yeah. All right. So here's the way it plays out. Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, come follow me. There is an invitation given by Christ, and there is an acknowledgement from Peter and Andrew that who Jesus is. There's what we call the headship or the lordship of who Jesus is. They surrender their worldly ways and they surrender the way that they used to do it and they begin to follow Jesus. They begin to submit and surrender their worldly views, their self-ruled lives, and they begin to follow Jesus. And you can write in the side, uh, you know, you can call it either headship or lordship, depending on what you want to use. Either of them will work. And so they, Jesus took, takes the initiative. 
they begin to guide, uh, they begin to follow Jesus, his teaching and his precepts, okay? It begins to start in the head. They recognize who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And they begin to follow him in their life and they begin to move forward. Now look with me in John um, chapter, or go back, follow. Follow means this in your outline. Follow means the same way with. So if we say that we are followers of Christ, we are saying that we are walking in the same way with Jesus. If Jesus is walking that way, and you're walking that way, it's hard for you to be convincing that you are a follower of Christ. Do we got that? So too many people say, I'm a follower of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there's times that we don't struggle and that kind of stuff. We're all sinners. Welcome to church, right? But the idea is that as a follower, you are to be in the same way with Jesus. We are to follow his teachings. We are to surrender, submit. We are to embrace the lordship of Christ in our life. John chapter 12, verse 26. Here's Here's what it says. Whoever serves me, Jesus is speaking, whoever serves me must follow me. Now, just kind of pause. Each of these, connect, grow, serve, give, and go, it is not one or four of the five or three of the five. As a follower of Christ, it is all of the five. Okay? You you, you don't get to select, well, I think I'll do that one. Okay? In this case, on this verse, serving and following are connected. Just as we looked at last week, connecting with believers in community There is a spiritual growth aspect to it. All of these overlap. Therefore, you cannot say, well, I'm good at connecting and great at serving. It's it's not one or four of the five. It's all of the five that make you a balanced follower of Christ. Are we tracking? So in this verse, Jesus says, you cannot serve me without following me. It's impossible. Okay, now let's take it the other way. You cannot follow Jesus without serving him. Okay, people say, I just want to serve God. Really? How are you going to do that? I don't know, I'm just going to sit down and serve God. No, you serve God, we'll see this next week, you serve God by serving others. You cannot serve God without serving others. Jesus said, I've come to be served, not to... No, he didn't. He said, I've come to serve, not to be served. You cannot follow Christ without serving others. And you cannot cannot serve others without following Christ. Otherwise, it's a social gospel kind of deal, right? And and so here, as we look at it, we are to be in the same way with with Christ. We are to serve others. We We are to have, it's all kind of in the head at this moment in our life. Now, look with me in your outline. And I'm going to stand on my stool here in a minute, okay? Knowledge without obedience leads to pride, okay? Knowledge without obedience leads to pride, okay? Watch it. Hand me the knives. I'm going to juggle. Listen, if there's anything that's killing the New Testament church in North America, it is legalism and religion. And all of those are from pride. All of those are people who sit in a group, 
fill their heads up with Bible stuff and it never translates into love and action. And folks are turned off by that. And I would say this, and this is a sad testimony. I would say on a weekly basis, I talk with pastors who ask me, how do you overcome that? I got a group, and man, I'm telling you. And they, they, they get in this, this deal where they're legalistic, and they're filled with themselves, and they're filled with pride, and, and, and as a result, it doesn't translate into the heart, and it doesn't translate into actions in their life. And this is the danger of just head knowledge. Okay? This is the danger of head knowledge in the, in, the, in the New Testament and specifically in the North American church that's going on. We are great at Bible study. We are not good at executing the Bible study. So look with me. This is Paul's complaint in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to believers who were mature in their faith. There was food that was being sacrificed to pagan gods, and they recognized that they could eat the food because it was just food. And that there was nothing that was going to contaminate them spiritually for eating the food that was, dead, uh, that was uh, committed to, to pagan gods. Okay? So their knowledge was right. Theologically, they were correct. It was food. And food is made to eat. Right? But look what Paul says. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Okay, let me translate it. Here's what Paul is saying. You guys got it right. Absolutely, you could eat the food. It's not going to hurt you. It's not even to a real God. It's a fake God. I get it. But he goes on and he says, but love builds up. Their knowledge was right, but their actions were not right. And it was offensive. It was offensive. They knew the right thing, but they weren't doing the right thing. And this is, this is the concern, I think, that when we get into Bible study kind of groups, is that we fill ourselves with a bunch of Bible stuff, and it stops right at the head. It never goes into, and we'll see in a moment, the heart and ultimately to the hands. And as a result, we're filled with knowledge that leads to puffing us up and we become very arrogant. And uh, you know, as we look out at the world, we don't have the compassion that Christ had. right? And, and so we're, we're good at that stuff. Number two, the second thing is this. And he goes on and he says, and I will make you. And that involves the heart, all right? So we have the, hand, we, have the, we have the head, the knowledge, and that should translate into the heart. Now, when I say heart, it's not the heart that pumps blood. It's the heart when you were in seventh grade and that girl broke up with you, okay? And you went home and your mama said, oh, honey, you'll be okay. She just broke your heart, right? You know that heart, right? So, so we're talking about kind of the emotions, of a person, not the beating heart, but I wanted to give you a word picture. So, so he says to them in, in verse uh, 19, he goes on and he says, and I will make you, and you can write off to the side. This is transformation, and then there's a theological word that we're going to use. It is the word sanctification, okay? There's a transformation 
and a sanctification that begins to change in us. The knowledge in when we get, he invites them to come, they surrender to the lordship of Christ, the headship of Christ, they begin to feed on the word of God, they begin to follow his direction, and it begins to translate into a heart that is being conformed into the image of Christ. All right, as we're getting shaped and molded in, into his image. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is a, is a great description of it. It says, for, God, uh, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed in, uh, to the likeness of his son. The prefix of, of conform is the word with, right? And so literally, here's the idea. That Jesus is the form, we are the liquid. We are being poured into him and we take on the shape of who he is. All right? As we're being poured into Christ, we're taking on the shape, the actions, the attitudes, the mindset, how we view the world is being transformed into the image of Christ. We think like Christ. We see the world as Christ. We see the needs of, of the world like Christ. We see everything through him. It starts out with knowledge. It doesn't end there. If it ends there, it's prideful. It begins to turn into a conviction in your life, right? And some of you are sitting here, and if you, you know, where, where last year you were involved in something, right? You gave your heart to Christ. He started working in your life, and now, right now you sit here and you're like, man, I am so glad I gave that up because that is not me, right? God is at work in your life. He's shaping and molding and changing your life in your outline. He transforms how we see the world, what we value, and what we consider to be important. As he begins to transform us and conform us and shape us and mold us into his image. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed. In other words, do not take the image of the world. Do not go along with the ways of the world as the world believes. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be, what is it? Transformed, okay? How? By the renewing of your mind, going back to one, as you feast on the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, study the Word of God, you allow it to come in, but it doesn't stop right there. It sinks into your heart, and it begins to shape and mold you and sanctify you and transform you and change your life as you begin to follow Him and doing, uh, doing as He desires for you to do uh, in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. Any amens to that? We're not under the law. Verse 18. And we, uh, with, uh, with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory, and are being, what are we? Transformed into His likeness. How are we being transformed? with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, right? So as we, as we allow the Word of God to come into our life and we feast on it, we focus on it, we meditate on it, and we surrender to the Lordship in our head, it begins to creep into our heart, into our emotion, and we allow God to shape and mold us, and we see the world the way He sees it, and we value what He values, and we want to do what He wants us to do, and we want to walk in obedience to Him, in our life. Now we can hit the pause button. Okay? Because each of these steps you can evaluate where you're at. How are you doing? Is it all head? You know, you could school me on a Greek word. Is it a conviction in your heart? 
Is it something that you feel passionate about? Is it something in your life that you, you, feel, you feel passionate about? Do you see the things different? Do you see broken people different? Do you see teenage mothers different? Do you see broken marriages different? How do you see them? If you were on a football team and we practice football, okay, we, we would practice things like tackling, blocking, pass patterns, right? Fumble recovery. How to let the air out of the ball <laughs> and not get caught routine. We, we, we would practice all those things. Not the, not the ball, letting the air out of the ball. <laughs> we wouldn't practice that. We'd just do it. <laughs> and we go, we have no idea. We think it's like the atmosphere that's doing that. <laughs> I'll hold it. Hey, this is an observation. You take me off the thing. You have one quarterback who's going to be in the Super Bowl. He wins and he cries and he says, God is good all the time. Right? And you got another guy. And you got another guy. And if you're related to Tom, maybe loan, loan me some money. And he is, oh, I think it's the atmospheric pressure in Washington. It's like, huh? What? If that was the case, those balls would have been going flat like a long time ago, right? So anyway, total different observation. Just back to this. If you practice football, <laughs> some of you guys are, oh. If you practice football, you're going to become better at it, right? Now, let's be honest. If we follow Christ and we're allowing the word of God to come into the head and begin to be transform who we are, Shouldn't we become stronger in our faith as time goes on? Shouldn't we become better at loving other people? Shouldn't we become better at taming our tongue? That wasn't very strong. I was like, I'm not committing to that, right? Reel that one back in. No, that one, oh no, we're going to put that one right there. That ain't going nowhere, right? So, so, so you can evaluate your life that way. You can evaluate your walk. How are you doing? Are you allowing it to sink in and take root in, into your life in every area of your life? Number three. The third thing is this. Jesus calls them and he says, you're going to be fishers of men. Right? They were fishermen. That was their trade. And so they leave the net, verse 20, and they follow Christ. So he changes their whole purpose in life. He changes them from someone who would go out and throw the net into the water and wait and, you know, do one of these things and reel in the net, take the fish to the market, sell it to the guy selling fish in the market. And he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to change the purpose of your life. Okay? Now listen. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he saved you for a purpose and it wasn't to go to heaven if it was to go to heaven the moment you gave your life to Christ you would be psh, boomed up right gone and everybody would go where's Dan at oh he gave his life to Christ oh that's kind of cool I want to do that right he 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 saved you for a purpose to be his hands in his feet right 
starts in the head. It translates into the heart, into passion, into conviction. And as he shapes and molds and he changes our worldview, as, as we change a uh, change of how we see what's important. And then it translates ultimately into actions of doing in our life. It translates into our hands. All right. And that's the metaphor in which we want to use that there's something active about it in our in our life. And so he says, I'm going to change your purpose. You were once a fisherman. Now you're going to be a fishers of men. Your purpose is going to be changed. Now listen, your vocation may not change. You may still be a whatever you are for a living. Okay? But if you are saved, if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, he saved you for a purpose, and you are to be a minister. Yes, I said that. But I'm a woman. A minister of the gospel. Not a pastor. It's a different subject. But all of us are to be ministers of the gospel in our life. He changes us and then he scatters us to go out and to make a difference into the world. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. <clears throat> you there? Here's what it says. And he died for all, that those who live, circle the word live, okay? For those who live should no longer live for themselves. Now, who's he speaking about? Well, he's going to tell you. But for him who died for them and was raised again. So who is he referring to when he says, for those who live? Not everyone. For the believers. Right? For the believers, because that's what he says later in the verse. He says, but for him who died for them and raised to Christ. For those who are followers of Christ. Now, follow along today. For those who are followers of Christ, right? We are the ones who are living. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do not do so longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation, sanctification, transformation. We got it? Okay? So there is a transformation that is taking place. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, time out, all right? This is something that's going to compel you or should compel you, but Paul is saying it should literally compel you into action as you get flying into the world. He says, the old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from, hello, all of this is from who? God, right. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do it. You didn't earn it. You're not even worthy of it. Okay? He died for you. And you're not even worthy of it. This is all God. And he goes on, he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, right? The simple message. Jesus is the Lord, Son of the living God, right? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, stop. Here's Paul. Here's what he's saying. When you recognize that you, verse 15, the living, the ones who were reconciled to, to God through Christ, when you recognize that God in His grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, reached down into the pits of hell 
and grabbed you by the shirt collar and pulled your little self right up out of the pit of hell where you deserve to live, where you deserve to be separated for all eternity from God who is holy and you're not holy and I'm not holy. And in His grace, He reached down and He plucked us out of hell. And He said to you and He said to me, now you have the gift, the ministry of reconciliation. You yourselves have experienced it. What you deserved was damnation. What you deserved was hell. And and God in his grace through Jesus Christ reached down and he plucked you out. And that alone, folks, that alone should compel the New Testament church into absolute service for the kingdom of God. Right? It should just absolutely compel us into it. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 19, that God, uh, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he, uh, and he has committed to us, to the believers, to verse 15, the living, those who have been reconciled to God, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What is the message of reconciliation? The gospel, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died on a cross and he rose again. He loves you and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. That's the message that's been entrusted to us. And when we begin to to internalize what he has done for us, that it compels us, verse 20, and we therefore are Christ's ambassadors. We speak on his behalf. We work on his behalf. We serve on his behalf. Everything is about him. That is the new purpose of life. As though God was making his appeal through us. And the reality is he is making the appeal through us. We are his voice. And just as the New Testament church lived their life and the outside world would watch them and it says they had favor with man. And what it meant was that how they were living their life, it was so favorable and so honoring that the people were like, wow, I need that. And that verse goes on and says, and the Lord added to those daily those who were saved. Could be translated daily those who watched the body of believers function. And so his appeal is through us. In your outline, when our hearts are transformed, it moves the disciple into action. Okay, now listen. Here's where we are in North American Christian churches. Almost two to one. There's, I believe, six, I want to say six, don't quote me on this, but I think there are six churches every day in America that are closing. Roughly less than three that are starting. We are losing the dying churches to the church plants. Okay? And we sit here, be honest. You watch the news, does it surprise you? (laughs) Do you think the New Testament church is making inroads into our culture? No, it doesn't surprise us. In fact, you watch the news and you go, yeah, I'm surprised it's not more. And here's where I think 
we've gone a little bit askew. We are great at Bible study. We're awesome at that. There, are, there is more great Bible studies out there now that, than, than, than a person has time to evaluate. On a regular basis in church, I bet you we get 15 to 20 uh, phone calls or letters or, or information emails on new Bible studies that are coming online. Okay? I don't think the problem is Bible study. I think the problem is executing the Bible study. That's what I think it is. And it hurts for me to say that because my gift is this d- discipleship. I mean, this is like my wheelhouse, right? But I think we're missing the action of it. We got it here. And we sit in a circle, like, oh, that Greek word, oh, really, that Greek? Oh, the, yeah, look at the tense on that. Whoa, that's exciting. Ooh, where'd you find that at? That is exciting. Where, oh, right, and we get all thrilled about some Greek word. And then someone says, hey, you going to go do? I'm busy. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm having a Bible study, man. I know, but you know that part where it says love your neighbors yourself? Yeah, we studied that last month. Have you done it yet? No, no, we're on to the next part. See, we're at this, uh, we're wanting, right? And that's where we're at. And I'm all for knowledge. I think it's awesome. But unless it translates into conviction that ultimately inspires us to move forward, then my concern is we end up filling ourselves with ourselves and we're filled with knowledge but we're not actually being the hands and feet in which Christ has called us to in your outline and we'll close right below the Ephesians passage and this is how you can evaluate yourself as you go home today a growing disciple of Christ is a person who is following Christ in the head the headship the lordship of Christ we're following in the same way with And it's being transformed in their heart. God is shaping. God is molding you. God is changing your worldviews. He's changing your interests. He's changing what you used to think is important. It begins to take shape in your heart. Which leads to a commitment to the mission of Christ. And that is ultimately in your hands and in your feet. Okay? Now listen. As a church, this is going to be our new metaphor. And I think it's pretty simple for you guys to evaluate. How am I doing in my head? How am I doing in my heart? How am I doing in my hands? And it needs to be balanced. Okay? It needs to be balanced. The danger is the other side. The danger is that we go out and do, but we're never telling them how to come to know Jesus, and we're never discipling them in head knowledge. Right? So we go and do whatever it is, but there's no discipleship taking place. That's just as wrong as a Bible study. Okay? It has to be balanced for it to take place. You have to be balanced in your growth, in your discipleship, in your life. Let's pray. Father,